Lord, we are so grateful this morning for the reminder of your presence and of your love for us. We thank you for your faithfulness, for the power that is at work in our world and in our lives because you are present and because we live in your world, because you are a loving and gracious God who is always at work. We hold before you this morning people whom we dearly love, the Glenn Oberholzer and his family. Lord, we pray that you would bless his family and his survivors. We pray that you would just console them and be close to them. Pray the same for the Swigert family as they mourn Mary's passing. We ask you for a peaceful passing for Mary. We ask you for consolation and grace for her family. Thank you for the opportunity that they've had to say goodbye to her. I pray that you would uh, uh, give them a, a good journey of grief as they remember her life and as they release her into the next. We pray, too, for Caesar and Chelsea and ask that you would continue to provide healing and strength for them as they recover from Chelsea's surgery. And, Lord, I know that we carry other burdens with us into this place. I'm just going to give a moment here for you to lift up a burden that's on your heart that comes to mind as we pray together. Lord, hear our prayers, we pray. Lord, I thank you for your provision for us. I thank you for all that you provide for us. Beyond uh, friends and family, you also provide for our material needs. We thank you for how generously you provide for us. And today, we, in our offering, we give back to you freely and joyfully, reminding you and reminding ourselves that we trust you to provide for us in the future. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and faith as we use the money that's been entrusted to this congregation. We pray that you would lead us forward in your mission for us. And Lord, as we think about this Advent season, we do pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, as we eagerly, eagerly await the full coming of your kingdom. Come to us today, but we invite you as well to hasten your second coming, that we might live with you in a more immediate way. And Lord, as we are acquainted with the troubles in the world around us, in our nation, and in the broader world, we ask you to have mercy. We ask you to bring healing and grace and peace in our world. I ask, Lord, that you would stir your people, not just in this room, but all across our nation, all across the world, Lord, that you would stir your people to full maturity and all the fruits of the Spirit that we have looked at very recently here, that we would truly love each other well and truly bless our neighbors in your name. Lord, bring to full maturity your love within us, your joy your peace, your patience, your kindness, your gentleness, your goodness, your faithfulness, and self-control. So that in every arena that we influence and that in which we spend our time, whether it's work or school, our neighborhoods, our families, our friends, whatever arena it is, that your kingdom might come in a fuller measure because we were there, because we, as your people, represented you well in those places. And now, Lord, this morning, we look forward to hearing from our brother PJ. We ask you to give him grace as he preaches. Ask you to give him boldness in preaching. Give him a clear mind. 
and a sense of your leading, even as he is here speaking this morning from his prepared notes. We ask that your grace would rest upon him, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know P.J. Savage, who's our preacher this morning. I know P.J. is a, a faithful, steady man, someone who is wise and gracious. And I look forward to hearing what, uh, what you have to share with us this morning, P.J. Thank you, Carl. Uh, I think I need to start out by just apologizing if I seem a little distracted this morning. Um, I've been disconnected from the congregation for a couple weeks, and I actually only learned about Mary's health this morning. So uh, Mary was one of the first people I met here when I came to MJMC way back before Megan and I even got married. And she always remembered my name and always made a point to come and talk to me. So I was, uh, that meant a lot to me. So Swaggered family, I'm feeling deeply for you this morning. Um, so a couple nights ago, as I was sitting in, uh, in our living room, and I'm sure there was some sort of game on, probably a Sixers game. I was going through Google Photos, and a uh, great feature if you don't use it. They, you know, everything from the past year. And I was doing that so that I could create the uh, traditional Christmas gift for my mom, which is a calendar of the kids. Uh, my parents living eight hours away, they don't get to see the grandkids that much, so they enjoy having this calendar that they can then sift through as the year goes and see different pictures of the kids. So as I'm doing that, I come across this photo. I don't know if you can see the photo that well. Um, this is one of those photos where when it pops up, the record screeches and a voiceover comes and says, I bet you're wondering how I got in this position. So this past summer, like every summer, my family and I were down in Nags Head, North Carolina to visit my parents. And I'm just going to put it out there. I love the beach. I'm a beach person. Um, give me sun, give me sand, give me surf, and I'm happy. I enjoy a cabin in the woods. However, given the choice, almost 100% of the time, I'm going to pick the beach. And luckily for me, my wife Megan is a beach person as well. And it's also worked out, I'm sure, by design, that all of my kids love the beach too. So I love the water. I could spend hours in the water, just me and my board. But being a father of three young kids, I don't have that opportunity anymore. So it makes my heart leap with joy when my kids want to grab their boards and come into the water also to catch some waves. That brings us to this picture. Now, if anyone's ever spent any time in Nags Head, specifically in late June, you understand that there's really only two sets of waves that you're going to get. You're either going to get some nice size five to seven foot breakers, which is good for an East Coast wave. Uh, for someone that's surfed in many seas, that's a good East Coast wave. Um, breaking about 30 to 50 yards offshore. Or you're going to get two to three foot breakers breaking about 10 yards offshore. Now, for me, person of my large persona, that's just going to hurt. But for my kids, that's exactly what they need, especially at their ages, learning how to bodyboard. So the day that I'm referencing in this photo, it was a great kids' day. Emma was doing her own thing with her, her board, and uh, I was helping Jude with his. And he was catching some good waves, but he was starting to get beat up a bit. 
So he wanted to take a break. Addie decided that she wanted to try. So I brought Addie out and had her positioned on the board and told her to hold on. Now I wanted to make sure that Addie got herself a good wave. If I put her in too high, the nose is going to dip and she's going to end up flipping over. If I put her in too low, the wave's just going to come crashing down on top of her. So I made sure she was ready and again told her to hold on. The sea had calmed down a bit and the waves were starting to pick up momentum without any caps. So I found myself a good wave and I began to push Addie into the swell. That brings us to this photo. Now, if you can make it out, you can see her mouth is wide open in fear. <laughs> Addie began, as the waves started going and she started catching what would have been a great ride had she listened to me, she got a little spooked and she let go, which anyone that's ever done this sort of water sport knows that if you let go and leave yourself to the mercy of the water, you're going under, which is what happened with Addie. So this was the last photo we got because Megan quickly stopped taking pictures and rushed in, and I joined her from the other end to grab Addie and pull her out of the water. But you know what? She ended up being fine. This is the photo that happened afterwards. She loved it, and I'm sure by the end of this, this coming summer, she'll be standing up on the board, and we'll have to make sure that she doesn't hurt herself anymore. Anyway, this was a major dad fail on my part to think that my four-year-old daughter would be able to listen and hold on to the board. My mistake. Anyway, we are in week three of Advent and our series titled, He Will Be Called, where we're looking at the names of Jesus from the prophetic verse in Isaiah 9-6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In week one, Pastor Carl explored the name Wonderful Counselor and left us with three ideas of how to accept Jesus as our Wonderful Counselor. The first being to be brutally honest with Jesus. Secondly, listen to what Jesus has to say to us. And finally, do what Jesus says. And Pastor Carl reminded us that the instructions the wonderful counselor gives us come from a place of love. Last week, Marshall Metter was here and he explored the name Mighty God. And he reminded us that Jesus forgives our sin and renames us as righteous. Jesus rescues us from death into life. Jesus defeated Satan and evil and is now preparing a place for his church, for his bride. And that Jesus did all of this knowing us advance, in advance. He saw us in our sin and weakness and determined that we are worth his effort, that we are worth his pain, and to know, to love, and to redeem us. And Marshall, I'm up here with my shirt tails out, preaching off an iPad, but I'm a proud Gen Xer. So this week I'll be exploring the name Everlasting Father exploring how we can view Jesus and how he takes care of us as that ultimate father figure. Now, I started with that story of Addie and my dad failed because when we use the term father to describe Jesus, there's a chance that we start to attribute human characteristics to him as a father. 
a memory of our own earthly fathers. Now, I'm sure there are many here that have great relationships or great memories of their earthly fathers. And I also recognize that there may be many here who do not have good relationships or fond memories of their earthly father. The story I told was to illustrate that regardless of how hard I try as a father, I'm still human and prone to mistakes. Now, I want to spend the first part of this morning looking at Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is incredibly political, and I think a lot of parallels can be drawn between then and now. For the sake of context, let's explore what was exactly going on in the world of Isaiah as he was called to prophecy. Prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, lived in Jerusalem during the last half of the 8th century BCE. According to Jewish scholars, his prophecies were deeply rooted in his time and place, and many of them address current events of his day. Unfortunately, only rarely does he tell us what these events are, but his audience would have understood exactly the things that he was referring to in his prophecies. As a result, scholars frequently need to reconstruct the political or historical settings of his prophecies. During the 8th century, the Assyrian Empire located in what we now know as northern Iraq or southeastern Turkey, began to grow in power and influence. It put more and more pressure on the smaller kingdoms along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, including the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. These countries sometimes accepted Assyria as their overlord, paying a tribute to their king and relying on him for their defense. At other times, these nations attempted to revolt against Assyria, often relying on Egypt as an ally. Usually, these revolts ended disastrously. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians after one such revolt in 722 BCE, and much of its population was deported. So for Isaiah, the rise of the Assyrian Empire presented a pressing religious question. To what extent do the Judeans attempt to confront their enemies using the usual military and diplomatic means, which entailed entering into alliances with other nations, and to what extent should the Judeans stay free of alliances and rely solely on God to protect them? This question plays out in Isaiah 7, 1 through 12, where Isaiah is advising the Judean king Ahaz. At that critical moment, probably in the year 735, While Jerusalem was besieged by the superior forces of the enemy, Isaiah conveyed the word of God to the king, saying, Take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, in saying this, Isaiah is referring to the kings who were wanting to bring Judah into their alliances or to destroy Judah altogether. Isaiah went on to advise Ahaz, Thus says the Lord, your God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. But Ahaz's fear did not subside. In a final attempt to influence the king, Isaiah offered to confirm the divine authority of his words by a sign. Isaiah told Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to test. Now, we don't need to question King Ahaz's sincerity. His refusal to ask for a sign was motivated in his belief of the law, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
besieged and harassed by his enemies, King Ahaz made the only decision that he felt he could make. He sent messengers to the Assyrian king requesting help with his enemies and offering to be his servant. Scholars have debated Ahaz's decision and have come to the conclusion that no other ruler would have acted differently. The state was in peril, so he appealed to a great power for military aid. Isaiah offered words. The Assyrians offered strength. To rely on God rather than on weapons would have been to subordinate political wisdom to faith. Now let me say that again. Subordinate political wisdom to faith. Given the state of our national affairs, I pray that the irony does not escape you. So we turn back to Isaiah. And I'm going to add verse 7 along with uh, verse 6 in chapter 9. And we read it through this historical contextual lens. We read it through the lens of Ahaz, siding with man rather than God. And this is what Isaiah has to say. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah is giving these words to people who are in the midst of war, in the midst of persecution, eventual exile, as a means of hope as to what is to come. We read these words and we recognize that our world, meaning our sphere of influence, does not compare to what the Judean people were experiencing. But the words offer us hope nonetheless. We then take a step back and we look at our world in more general and physical terms and we see that there are countries dealing with war, that there are countries dealing with power imbalance, countries dealing with great inequities in the distribution of wealth. Countries dealing with the marginalization of people groups based on race, ethnicity, gender, etc. And we don't need to look far because all of those issues that other countries are dealing with, those issues are happening right here too. Right here in the United States. Right here in Pennsylvania. Right here in Lancaster. Right here in Mount Joy. So we look at the words of Isaiah in 9-6, and we see how political they, they can become. But we also have the opportunity, and I would argue the responsibility, to view them personally as well. Looking at what these words mean to us personally will help inform us on how to view them politically and be salt and light to those most affected by the imbalances of our world. So let's look at the name Everlasting Father. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had 
and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For, his, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them, what's going on? Your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. But he answered, I'm sorry, the father went out then and pleaded with him. And the older son answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed anything you said, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. I could spend a whole sermon unpacking the metaphors for the two sons, as well as how Jesus' audience would have viewed the cultural impact of what he was saying. It's a message that many of us have heard before, and an important one. And if you've never heard it before and are interested in exploring it, I highly recommend Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God. But I want to spend the rest of my time today looking at the father in this story, who is the strongest example I can think of of how Jesus relates to us, his children. Because we have all been there at some point in our lives. We have all been the younger and the older son. We have all, at some point in our lives, felt that we are in charge of our own destinies and that we will live how we see fit. We have all, at some point in our lives, felt that we were better than them. That our thinking was more educated and well-informed than them. That we can care for people better than them. That we serve our God better than them. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what fascinates me about the Father, Jesus, is that he doesn't care. I mean, he does, but he doesn't. That's the beauty of grace. Jesus cares deeply how we live our lives and how we treat people. But at the same time, he doesn't hold it against us when we fail. He continues to love and care for us just the same, no matter how many times we get it wrong. And that everlasting Father, Jesus, chooses to love us in spite of our shortcomings and our repeated failures. Pastor Tim Keller, who I referenced earlier, sums it up in his book, Prodigal God, this way. He writes, Jesus does not divide the world into the moral and immoral. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and feast. This means that Jesus' message, which is the gospel, is a completely different spirituality. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong. But everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. By contrast, elder brothers divide the world into two. The good people are in, the bad people, the real problem with the world, are out. Younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing. The open-minded and tolerant people are in, and the bigoted, narrow-minded people, the real problem with the world, are out. The truth is that we need to grasp, the truth that we need to grasp is that Jesus, the Father, makes no such distinction, only asking that you recognize that you need him, but loving you just the same if you haven't gotten there yet. This past summer, I had a helpless dad moment where I really empathize, eh, I can't speak today, empathize, empathy, I, gave, I had empathy. For the father in this parable. I can only imagine the helplessness the father felt when his younger son went off on his own. I was sitting at my desk at work, and I received a call from my mother-in-law, Nancy. Nancy was watching the kids that day because Megan was working as well. So when she calls me, my spidey sense begins to tingle. See, I can't envision a world where Nancy would be calling me during the day, unless there was a problem. Turns out Jude was playing outside down at Nancy's house and a situation arose where Jude had to go into a window well to retrieve a ball. Jude slipped when he was in the window well. He fell through the glass and caused a laceration on his elbow that required stitches. Nancy was calling me to inform me of what happened and told me that she was taking Jude to urgent care. I, of course, asked Nancy, well, do you need me to meet you there? Or can I come get Addie and Emma to help you out? And she said, no, got things under control. Cool. A few minutes later, 
I received another call from Nancy saying that Jude wanted me there at urgent care. I cannot describe to you the emotions that I felt as I had to hold Jude's hand and remain strong for him as he was in such pain, sobbing as he was getting his stitches put in. Jude did an amazing job, though, and this is the end result. Call it Jude's smiley face. It's actually a really cool scar. I cannot imagine the heartbreak that Jesus experiences every time we are in pain. Whether that is physical pain, emotional pain, or mental anguish. I cannot imagine the heartbreak that Jesus experiences every time we choose hate or indifference over service and love. I cannot imagine the heartbreak that Jesus experiences every time we choose sin. As imperfect as I am, I can absolutely imagine loving my kids unconditionally, and I know that I will never come close to loving them as much as Jesus, their everlasting Father, does. Jesus, by definition, is love. When we recognize that, when we recognize that Jesus loves us unconditionally, we can then take steps towards loving others in our world unconditionally. That is when the message of Isaiah becomes political. That is when the message of Isaiah becomes powerful. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says in his famed, I have a dream speech, I have a dream that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners can one day sit down at the table of brotherhood. That is when we can put the words of Isaiah 9-6 into practice. Jesus loves us. Please understand that. Jesus loves us. Despite of all of our faults, despite all of our failures, Jesus loves us all as his sons and daughters. Let us understand that love and then take it out into our worlds and put it into action so that we, who are privileged and powerful, can empower the meek and lift the poor in spirit up and begin to break down the barriers that divide us. And we do this all under that loving gaze of our everlasting Father, Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for the love that you give us. And I pray that all of us in here are in a place that we can experience that love, Father. But if we're not, if, if we feel far from you, if we feel like we just can't get there, Father, I pray that we know that you love us all the same. You love us as sons. You love us as daughters. Father, I pray that we can take that love 
that we experience and we take it out into our worlds. And we are driven to make change because, Father, our world is broken. This world that we live in, this country that we live in, the most powerful and wealthy country in the nation, it is broken, Father, and it is our responsibility to go out and change that. Father, we need to change it with love, and we can only change it with love if we can experience that love from you, Father. It's there. It's there. I just pray that we can experience it. I pray that we understand that your love is there for us, Father. Let that be our mission, to reach someone and show them that they are loved. In Jesus' name, amen.